Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I was around 17 years old when I first did any kind of news reporting. I was a university student. I had just signed up to work at the college radio station. Shout out to WMUA. And my first assignment was to cover a controversial campus speaker. It was an anti-affirmative action activist. His name was Ward Connerly. This was the late 90s, and Connerly was the chief architect of Prop 209, which was this ballot initiative that abolished race-based affirmative action in California's public universities. And that night on my campus, he was just completely shouted down. I mean, not just by protesters outside, but by angry students in the hall. But it wasn't the kind of story that would have been picked up beyond local papers. That's not the case today. UMass Amherst students gathering in front of their student union to launch a protest against the campus police department. Now, very routine student protests make national news. We report on it here at CNN all the time. CNN's L. Reed went to the University of Pittsburgh during a protest to ask students and educators what they think. Do you think kids are less able to take or listen to opposing views now? No, I don't think they're less able to listen to opposing views. I just think they take less crap as they get older. But between protesting controversial speakers, complaining about certain professors, and never mind the debate over safe spaces, there are more and more partisan complaints about the state of free speech on America's campuses. You know, I've called it a safe enough space. It's not so safe that you can't get offended, but it's safe enough that you're not going to get really hurt. So what do school leaders have to say about charges that campuses are biased, intolerant against some ideologies and coddling of others? How do they balance freedom of expression and the idea that speech can be violence? I'm Audie Cornish, and this is The Assignment. And I hear you're a former campus protester. I uh, have, yes, I am. He's a current (laughs) campus protester. Oh, he is, he is. (laughs) This is Michael Roth, president of Wesleyan University. He's also the author of a book called Safe Enough Spaces, which is about debates surrounding affirmative action, political correctness, and free speech. Did you ever protest as a student? Absolutely not. I was a good and decent human being who fell in line and did exactly what I was supposed to do at every phase of the game. My gosh, we don't know who's listening to this. Give me a glimmer. Give me a glimmer. We need to know you're human. Well, no, sincerely, I I was a first-generation college student. I was so excited to be there. It would never have occurred to me to question anything happening on my campus. That's Rosalind Clark Artis, president of Benedict College. That's a historically Black college in Columbia, South Carolina. Now, they're among nearly a dozen campus presidents that have joined the Campus Call for Free Expression. The other schools include Duke, the University of Pittsburgh, Cornell, and more. 
These school presidents signed a pact put together by the Institute for Citizens and Scholars to, quote, spotlight, uplift, and reemphasize the principles of critical inquiry and civic discourse on their campuses. For Artisan Roth, the idea that a campus might be intolerant of certain ideas or even hostile to speakers, it's not a hypothetical. For example, there's no more controversial speaker than the former president, Donald Trump. We were hosting a criminal justice uh, forum, and we invited all of the then candidates for the presidency, 12 Democrats, one unopposed Republican, uh, not assuming necessarily that an unopposed Republican would choose to attend. Surprise, uh, he accepted the invitation. Um, And suddenly, what would have been um, a normal thing on a college campus, an honor, a privilege on a college campus to host a sitting U.S. president became a firestorm, um, a political, um, you know, football is, is too trite to describe what occurred during that period of time. In your office, did people immediately say, oh, shoot, should we do this? Or was it, yay, great, we've got a candidate? Um, it was, oh, my God, Donald Trump's coming to Benedict College. What are we, we that can't happen. That can't happen. Um, and so that can't happen. What did they what did they mean by that? That can't happen. That is, this is a historically black college campus. Uh, this is a president whose um, racial um, preferences are publicly known or felt um, that this would be the last place on earth that would be a welcoming environment for um, for a president who took the social positions that that Donald Trump has. And so and are those the voices in your ear advisors, or is that mail coming in? Is that yourself? Uh, For the most part, it was our alumni. Um, Students were thoughtful in their approach. We held town halls. We talked through it. They asked questions. Students were more thoughtful. Um, Students are more empowered. Students are um, more intellectually agile in many instances. They're younger. They're closer to the ground. They think more freely, perhaps. Uh, Faculty were probably frightened to say much. Uh, Nobody knew what to say or do internal to the institution. Um, But the alumni spoke up quickly and loudly and said, this can't happen. And if it does, you need to leave here. Right. There were petitions. Roslyn needs to go. There were petitions uh, for my um, termination. But at the time, was there any piece of criticism you got from an alumni or someone on campus that hurt? Yeah. Um, quite frankly, a lot of it was incredibly painful. Um, there were questions about my judgment, my own political views, which quite frankly, um, aren't necessarily relevant to my ability to lead the campus effectively, though those two things were conflated. Um, there were assertions that I was too weak to stop this from happening to us, right? As though this were, um, a storm that was coming and I was not able to protect the campus from this. I was not able to protect my students from it. Um, there were accusations that my students would be harmed by this and that, in fact, the campus itself, that the history and legacy of the campus would be irreparably harmed and destroyed if this actually happened. So lots of questions around my capacity to lead in this moment and my judgment in having allowed this to happen. Over the past two years, we have increased federal funding for HBCUs by a record 13 percent. Check out the last administration. See what they did for you. Not too much. Not too much. You said it, nothing. Not much. Trump visited in October of 2019. There were still student protests 
And Benedict, working with the Secret Service, ended up canceling classes and requesting that all students remain indoors for safety concerns. They even served lunch to the dorms. And just a small percentage of enrolled students were allowed inside for the speech. Michael, I see your eyebrows up as you're listening to this story. What are you thinking? Well, it reminds me of a different level of intensity when several years ago I was asked to invite Justice Scalia to campus. We have a a free speech lecture every year, uh, usually given by a constitutional lawyer or professor, sometimes, sometimes a judge, very occasionally Supreme Court justice. And so the faculty committee that recommends I issued the invitation, asked me to invite Justice Scalia. I thought they did so um, just to see if I would, because they were probably to the, to the left of me, and I was appalled the, of the idea of inviting Justice Scalia, who I really felt and still feel did, did more harm to the interpretation of the American Constitution than anyone, maybe in the history of the country, but certainly since the 1800s. And um, But I invited him because I thought he wouldn't come. <laughs> he was They're always too busy, and we don't pay very much. And, you know, as you know from Supreme Court justices, they like to get paid a lot. Um, but he um, he said, I'd love to come. What's the reaction in the teacher's lounge, so to speak? The reaction is, uh, how do we make this work so that it's productive for the campus? That is, uh, a lot of people protest for as much as they want, as long as the event could take place, as long as the, the visitor can do what we've invited him to do, which was to meet with students, which to his great credit, he did all day. There is a movement that's like the anti-woke movement, let me just put a label on it like that, that says, you know, campuses are illiberal, campuses are pushing political conformity, and to even invite someone on campus means that you have to deal with um, some movement against the speaker because there's no free speech. That's nonsense. I mean, across the country, thousands of lectures are going on today (laughs) of people of various different opinions, and they go off without a hitch. And um, when, you know, uh, uh, either an entertainer who's uh, associated with the right, a provocateur, or sometimes a has-been scholar is shouted down, that makes the news. But there are thousands of these talks going on all the time. Scalia came. There were people who stood up in yellow jumpsuits to protest the Guantanamo charade uh, of, of torture and imprisonment of people without trial. We asked them to sit down or leave. They did. He gave his talk. It was as feisty as you would imagine from Justice Scalia. And uh, so Scalia's whether his work on on uh, gay rights or against gay rights or uh, any number of other uh, opinions that he authored would have been anathema to many people on campus. But they dealt with it. They asked good questions. They engaged in good argument. I think the students, despite themselves, came to think he's an interesting guy because he actually likes to have an argument. I think this is quite different than Donald Trump turning a campus into a platform for his own uh, race or his own his own uh, visibility, Scalia actually acted like a scholar, a judge, and and had debates. I think this idea that there was a golden age of free speech when people who were in their fifties and sixties and seventies were in college, and now that golden age is over, it's just a symptom of people getting old and out of touch with what's happening on campus. Rosalind, do you believe that? I do. I do. 
uh, I think our students are um, far more aware of their right to an opinion than we give them credit for, than we perhaps offer them room for. And that's one of the things I think um, Michael and I are both committed to, ensuring that our students understand uh, that that is alive and well on our campuses and that they have every right to engage in a manner that they see fit uh, to express themselves on myriad issues. So I, I think, again, the students were flexible, malleable. Yes, they had strong opinions. Yes, they challenged. Yes, they asked questions. Yes, they organized. Yes, they expressed themselves. But at no point did a student say to me, this can't happen here. Hmm. He should not be allowed here. It was the adults that took that position, right? Whatever their political persuasion, feelings, agendas were, the students understood that in an academic environment, there are going to be differences of opinion. And to Michael's point, the ability to the maturity, the intellectual maturity it takes to listen, to process, to question, and even challenge is endemic to the academic experience. And if we're truly committed to producing an educated citizenry, there have to be opportunities where students hear something besides their own voices. So you're implying that there's the politics of adults crowding out, creating some of this atmosphere. I'm not implying it. I'm stating it emphatically. I think these kids um, are much more thoughtful than we give them credit for. I think they have a clarity around who they are and their own right to think when you can have a real conversation. You can listen, you can respond, you can connect, you can challenge. We'll be back after this break. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back. Our guests are Rosalind Artis, president of Benedict College, and the president of Wesleyan University, Michael Roth. And I wanted to have a frank conversation about liberal bias. I've been teaching since the 1980s, and, and only 12, 15 years ago, uh, somebody who was on my board at Wesleyan, who's a thinks of himself as a libertarian, pointed out to me the the leftist bias of of myself and and my many of my colleagues, which I thought was not true actually at the time i I didn't see it. Um, as more I paid attention to it, I thought, oh my goodness, yeah, look the way I teach, look at the way my friends teach, look at the people we invite. We say things like, oh, we're only bringing the best people. They just happen to have the same views that I, that I have, you know, or my friends have. 
And so I realized that we had a problem of, of bias and that one of the ways you correct for bias is by making it more visible. So I wrote this piece in the Wall Street Journal calling for an affirmative action program for conservatives, which everybody hated. The conservatives said, we don't need affirmative action. We just haven't need a, mer a real meritocracy. And then my, my, my former friends, <laughs> the faculty and students, they, they said, you know, you sullied the words affirmative action by connecting them to conservatives. My point was is that we have to be more mindful of our biases uh, when we're talking about engagement in the public sphere. Now we're really getting somewhere. So you, you have had the experience of identifying this in yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Did you consider yourself intolerant? Uh, I, no, biased. So I teach a course, I taught it this morning, the modern and the postmodern. We do a lot of rebellious thinkers, and, and next week we'll read Marx. And I, when I looked across to all the stuff I was reading, it's all about revolution and radicalism, which is uh, the, the nature of the course in a way. But once I realized this bias issue, I just started integrating more conservative thinkers, people who objected to the, other, the folks I was assigning or adding other assignments into the mix makes the course better. It doesn't mean that I was silencing someone before exactly, although I wasn't paying enough attention to the diversity of thought. So, Rosalind Artis, when you hear this, is that something that you think other campus leaders are willing to do, to have a dialogue that's like, yeah, we are, we are biased in certain ways? So the short answer is no, but we have to make them. That's the point. But for the friend who pointed out the bias, Michael would have continued exercising bias. We don't want to hear it, but sometimes we have to. That's the whole point of this conversation. There are going to be people you don't agree with. There are going to be concepts you don't agree with, policies you don't agree with. But it's okay to hear it, to process it, to think about it, to debate it, to flesh it out, to create an opposing view. That's a much richer learning environment that creates the kind of engagement that we're looking for. We, I want to see a debate yes. with two students from completely opposite points of view, because I want to see the thought process and the critical thinking and the how do I dismantle the other guy's argument. I mean, that's the process we want to see people engage in because it inspires them. Maybe it angers them. Maybe it um, pushes them. It lights a fire in some way. Right. But has the reluctance to engage on this by universities and colleges created an opening for what's happening in Florida? Education needs to be about teaching people things that matter, not trying to indoctrinate them. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis turned his words into action at New College of Florida. Now the school is in chaos and professors are leaving just as the fall semester gets underway. There is a, a, a tiny movement that says campuses are not really free and we need to do something about it. Do you think that that reluctance basically led to the moment we're in now? I think it contributed significantly. I, I think that campuses have personalities, just as presidents have personalities. Campuses have personality. Wesleyan is thought of in a certain way. Benedict is thought of in a certain way. People who think that way go there. We want to create environments where that's not the case, that you are not um, uh, myopic in your views, where you are not myopic in your uh, personality, um, your institutional characteristics, because if you do that, there is no learning. There is only repetition. There is no learning. There is no growth. There is no expansion. Um, and that's not the point of higher education. This morning, I'm teaching Frankenstein, 
And a, a student stands up and said, you know, Frankenstein could be read as an allegory of trans people. A lot of people are turning us into monsters. He just wanted to hug this kid, right? I mean, it was so brave. He could see that they were really scared. And, and, you know, and my job as a teacher is to say, go, you know, you're, we're here for you. Say, your, say what you have to say. And I think that happens all the time. So what's your response to that kind of, I would, I would think, if I'm from the position of somebody who's very concerned with woke ideology and fighting it, I would say, oh no, why would someone turn another Western classic into a story about trans issues? Gender ideology has made its way into the classrooms once again, right? There's a perception that there are progressive ideas that are overtaking classroom and classroom discussions. That's kind of what I hear in the complaints. But you don't hear that from people in classrooms. You hear that from politicians who are eager to stoke anxiety about young people that old people easily have, especially liberals, actually, when they think, oh, these young people are more liberal than even I am. And then you get people like DeSantis who needs a scapegoat or a punching bag and finds a vulnerable population and uses that to stir up animosity. But I think on campuses, we have religious kids, we have trans kids, we have football players, and we have radicals in the same classroom. <laughs> and they can be in the same person. But Rosalind, you were nodding. Do you hear what I'm saying? As I'm, I, yeah. I know it's not articulate, but in part, that's because very few people seem able to define what woke means in the Including first place. Including the two of us, apparently. But yeah. I, I do think that um, that is... That is exactly the point that we're trying to get to, is that this brave student um, was not injecting poison into the classroom. Um, it, it wasn't tear gas. It was an opinion, a feeling, a thought, an idea that could have led to a very robust conversation about identity, or it could have simply been a statement and you move on with the rest of Shelley's work. I mean, so the fact that there is the freedom in this space to articulate your own deepest feelings, fears, insecurities, et cetera, is an okay thing. And this notion that external forces, as Michael articulated, would turn that into a political um, football of sorts and saying, oh, look, see, once again, you've injected LGBTQ plus issues into everything. Why do they dominate it? They don't. They don't, yeah. They don't. Yeah. It's just, it's not true. What I hear from you both is an attempt to maybe take back the discussion about what happens on campus, that maybe it sort of escaped the grasp of university leaders in a way. Like as a reporter, I, you know, see it in the context of politics constantly. And it's become a widely discussed cultural issue about how just kind of the kids these days, uh, making us say new words, making us say new pronouns, Policing what we can or can't say, creating cultures of social ostracization. People believe that these things do emanate from campuses, that the thinking itself, the academic language, has reached beyond campus walls in a way that's unhealthy. So maybe a different way to think about that is it wasn't born on college campuses. It was just free to be expressed on a college campus. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? Those things existed. They exist in society. People don't change their sexuality because they went to college necessarily. They may feel free to express it for the first time since they've left their rural, closed, conservative, you know, middle America town. But it, it, that is not created by the college. It is facilitated. The conversation around it is facilitated. And I, I find it 
I'm I'm blown away by the notion that that is bad. Yeah. What is wrong with that? But it was ever thus. Yeah. I mean, people have been complaining about uh, college students as long as we've had college students. But the people today who were in college and occupying president's offices when they were, now they feel left out. Of, they're not the cool kids anymore because the young people today are doing things differently than even liberal reporters would have it. They, they use different language. But that's the way, it, I mean, it, it's always been that way. We, we project a lot of our anxieties about getting old onto these young people. And what we, as college presidents, we have this wonderful opportunity to see how young people are, do, are experimenting with the world on campus, not like ingesting a woke ideology, but finding ways to experiment with their identity, with ideas, with sometimes with religions, and sometimes with sexuality, and then finding their way in the world. This is a great thing. This is a great opportunity when you're a student to have the freedom to explore. I'm not worried about that freedom. I think it's a great thing when, when we can give them the space to do that exploration. And I think the opposite of freedom is fear, right? Yes. We are afraid of their ideas. Um, you mentioned the pronouns. I don't use them. That's my personal position. I don't use them. Um, I'm Dr. Roslyn, President Artist, Roslyn, Doc, I've been called a lot of other things I can't say on the air. I mean, I, I answered all of them for the most part. I don't have to define myself as a she, her, him, her, it, they. I'm just Rosalind. And so I'm very clear about that with my students. You may choose to express yourself however you choose to, but you will not, you don't, I don't have to conform. I'm not adding that to my presidential signature, period. I'm not. Because it's, it's it, to me, I don't have to define myself for you. My, my name is Rosalind Artis. You ha can call me any variation of that. And if you tell me, um, if Michael decides to start going by Michelle today, then, hi, Michelle, how are you? I respect your right to be who you are. But this idea that it's taking over everything and now we have to, no, we don't. You know, my, some of my students think I'm, you know, a right winger. Some of them probably think I'm a left winger sometimes. And if we don't always agree, and sometimes they can get heated, sometimes they, people get angry, but that's fine. Um, it's such a, you know, I've called it a safe enough space. It's not so safe that you can't get offended and, uh, get, you know, disturbed. I and mean, that's, you should, but it's safe enough that you're not going to get really hurt. And when people say they're really hurt, it's important to pay attention to them. But sometimes you have to say, no, you're not. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. uh, some, you're okay. I'm glad you guys got into this because the safe space thing, that's another kind of political, um, I shouldn't say football, maybe uh, beanbag. There's just like little things that get kicked around a lot. Yeah. And yeah. that's one of them. And, you know, you just... You just said, Michael Roth, a safe enough space, right? Yeah. And Rosalind, I think you have a slightly different <laughs> version of this. I do. I, I don't guarantee you intellectual safety. If you choose to come to Benedict College, what I will provide is physical safety, right? We have security. We have a campus. We do everything to protect our students' physical presence. But your brain is a muscle, and I want it to burn. So what do you say to the student who says... Um, listen, if if someone comes here and is spewing hateful ideas that that undermine the nature of my own humanity, that is a kind of violence, and you mm -hmm. should keep me safe from that. I, I think that student, one, as Michael pointed out, should be listened to and taken seriously. Um, we certainly offer resources on our campus um, for that kind of healing, but that student is going to have to 
develop some resilience and some thick skin. And I'm not suggesting that we're going to abuse our kids intentionally, but I do think the world is a wide open place. I might be able to tone it down in a classroom. I don't think I should do that. I think you're going to have to deal with disagreeable people in the world as an adult. And if you don't develop the ability to listen constructively, to tune out things that are painful, to wrestle with things that might be hurtful to you and be okay, you're going to be challenged. You shouldn't turn on the TV. You better not turn on a computer. There's a constant feed in this country right now, in this world right now. And if we don't teach kids how to manage their emotions, how to hear difficult things, how to process pain constructively, we're doing them a tremendous disservice. Michael Roth, what's a safe enough space? Well, it's not that different from what Rollison describes. I, you know, the, the, I, so what's I bu- your response to my imaginary student? who says, you've platformed an idea, given it the imprimatur of the power of the university by bringing a person here or teaching something in class, something that undermines who I am and my humanity, its violence, and you should protect me from that. I think sometimes that's true, actually, that uh, I would would not allow uh, a, a Nazi speaker to come to campus, or I would not allow um, a professor or, or student uh, is, is if I was able to stop it to, from telling a, a fellow, a, a student, let's say a professor telling a student, you have a nice ass. I don't have to let it happen on, on campus. I, I don't think women have to put up with that here. And I don't think minoritized communities have to uh, be subjected to overt discriminatory speech. Most of the time, it's pretty clear when that what, what, what that amounts to. There are some tough cases. And I think in tough cases, we should... I err on the side of building resilience with Rosalind. So it should be safe enough so you can actually be disturbed and and be uh, offended. But you can also be protected against someone who says, you know, I think people like you ought to be exterminated. I don't think I have to allow that to be a subject of debate um, on campus. I, I think it's that is a kind of violence and and we should prevent it. I agree with Michael, but I would simply challenge, and it's perhaps a whole nother conversation on another day, um, that has absolutely been the case for um, our Jewish brethren. That has absolutely been the case, to some extent, less recently for gender. Black people have never had allies. Black students have been assaulted in classrooms and in the public sphere. We have no allies. I teach a population of low-wealth, first-generation Black kids. And if they don't develop a thick skin, mm-hmm. it's going to be a tough world for them because nobody's out there protecting them. We would never let a Nazi have an audience in this country. But we let um, people who hate Black people have an audience in this country. Another conversation. But, but— Let's stay with this for a moment, because this is where that student voice that says, well, this is why I think a certain speaker should be disinvited. This is why I don't think this professor should be talking about X, Y, and Z or reading this book or whatever, right? Maybe they, in some cases, are coming from the place, Rosalind, you're describing. Mm -hmm. Why must I endure what I consider an intellectual assault in a place where I'm paying to go to school under the guise of free speech? So... There are a couple of responses to that. First, it's a continuum. It's virtually impossible to draw a bright line on what... Michael gave some examples, right? These things are non-starters for us on these campuses. Those things, again, we can protect our students from. But there's an awful lot of gray area in there. And it's really, really sometimes difficult to parse out exactly where that line is drawn. That's the first challenge. Um, 
And I think secondly, this isn't going to be a popular statement, but students choose what college to attend, right? If Benedict is not um, providing you a, quote, safe enough space and it's doing psychological harm to you, then perhaps you should consider enrolling at Wesleyan. Right. I mean, we're we may not be for everyone because we do mm. believe in the ability to challenge ideas and to be exposed to different opinions and thoughts. And so we may or may not be the school for you if that's the case. And I say yeah, that well, at great personal risk. Right? No, well, we but we 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 agree uh, that and Wesleyan, too, is a place where you, your ideas should be challenged. But as Ralph said, there's not an obvious bright line about these things, but there are there are provocateurs who simply do not advance the um, education of the students, but just want to provoke strong reactions. And and I don't think students should have to, or faculty should have to put up with that. Um, free speech folks always have something that they won't allow, whether it's pornography or violence or some other thing. And I, I, I think it's almost always the case you should err on the side of more speech but sometimes it's not um it's not just speech my sense on campus is that the spectrum of opinion is wide and people do have strong debates and they do that unlike other parts of american culture because they feel it's safe enough to have disagreements uh, not so safe that you just, you're not going to find anybody to do, disagree with, but safe enough where you can have a really a interesting disagreement and someone's not going to pull out a gun. That's not going to happen on most of our campuses, um, uh, one hopes. It's, this sounds hard. I mean, you're the ones who actually have to figure out what that line is between what to allow and what not to allow. But that's what teachers do, right? It's just yeah. like what, what Rosalind was saying. We want our students to become more resilient. And you want it to burn. But we all know you can actually get injured if you push yourself too hard. And you just, you know, as a coach, as a teacher, you try to, like, I've told students, I'm not going to condemn that protest because you think it's racist. Go and do a counter-protest. Or you think it's anti-Semitic. I'm not going to stop it. You, it's not, you go ahead and you, and they figure it out. Either they they do their own protest or they write their own opinion piece in the student newspaper. And I think the tendency to go to a dean or a president and say, protect me is, is a bad thing. And I, it may be more of that than there used to be. But people in our jobs should say, yeah, well, you guys got to go work it out. That was the president of Wesleyan University, Michael Roth. That's in Connecticut. And Rosalind Clark Artis, president of Benedict College in South Carolina. This episode of The Assignment, a production of CNN Audio, was produced by Lori Gallaretta and Carla Javier. Our producers are Jennifer Lai and Dan Bloom. Our associate producer is Isoke Samuel. Matt Martinez is the senior producer of our show. Our technical director is Dan DeZula. He mixed this episode. And our executive producer is Steve Lichtai. Special thanks, as always, to Katie Hinman and, of course, to you for taking the time to listen. I'm Audie Cornish. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.